This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. I've been in here for, I can tell you exactly, 11,945 days, okay? 11,945 days I've been in here. And um, it hasn't been easy. A <laughs> hundred years? That's me, I'm a kid. I didn't do anything. You know? And, uh, you know, that was uh, that was real painful, man. You know, because my life was discarded as if, you know, like I was a piece of trash or something. You know, a hundred years, and I had dreams. You know, I wanted to do things. I wasn't committing crimes, you know? I was a very good young man. That is what happens in so many cases. The cops have a hunch because they're so smart at the scene they have a hunch and once they act on that hunch they sort of develop tunnel vision and they take off marching in the wrong direction and that happens in so many of these wrongful convictions they open the the, uh, the cell door and i walk downstairs and i actually walked downstairs to to be outside it felt very strange to be, like I said, to be walking without no shackles on my feet. I thought it was a dream, but then again, it wasn't a dream. This is Wrongful Conviction. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. This is Jason Flom. I'm your host. And today we have an extraordinary episode. I mean, I am, uh, uh, I, I don't even, I'm at a loss for words, but I'm going to introduce our guest right now. Fred Clay was wrongfully imprisoned at the age of 16 and served 38 years for a murder he didn't commit. Uh, Fred, welcome to the show. 
Thank you very much. I'm very honored. Appreciate it very much. I always say I'm I'm glad I'm sorry you're here, but I'm glad you're here. And uh, I want to start off by apologizing to you on behalf of the human race and America and people and just uh, there's nothing that can be said. But um, let me just put that out there for starters. And and with us today is Chris Burrell. Chris Burrell is an investigative reporter with the nonprofit New England Center for Investigative Reporting, a WGBH news partner um, who does uh, work on, uh, well, he's worked on your case, you're telling your story, and as many other, as well as many others. So, Chris, welcome. Glad you're here. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. Chris, how did you first come across this story, and why did it impact you so much that you wanted to do an article about it? Yeah, well, I work for the New England Center for Investigative Reporting. We've done uh, several stories on wrongful conviction cases, um, and and specifically this issue of, you know, what happens afterwards, because we do know there's a fair amount of media attention when this happens. Somebody's served a long amount of time uh, for a crime that they that they didn't do, and they're released, and it's, you know, a lot of applause and a lot of TV cameras. So I was there the day he got out, as was a lot of other media. Um, but the question came up, well, what is what is life really like? You know, once this kind of once the applause fades, what is what is what is a person's life really like? So initially, um, Fred was not that keen on uh, me f- <laughs> proffering this idea of following him around at different points over the course of about a year. Um, but I met with him on a couple occasions, and he seemed open to it. And so we just struck up this this intervals of trying to meet up. And I wanted to see him in different situations, trying to navigate, again, the basic survival, um, the blocks, the basic blocks of survival. How do you, how do you find shelter? How do you, how do you feed yourself? And so for the first few months, he didn't, he didn't have a job. He had a little bit of money from a, from a GoFundMe site. Um, and he had food stamps. Um, and his first job was working for UPS, which was very uneven work. He'd show up for a shift and they'd be tell him, well, we've only got a couple hours work instead of a full shift. And he'd walk home through the snow in the street because people didn't shovel their sidewalks and we get a lot of snow up in Northern Massachusetts. And, um, it wasn't until, um, sometime late winter, early spring that he got this job, um, precision grinding aviation parts, uh, grinding metal and, um, he seemed really grateful to have that work, but as everybody knows, rent in most cities in America is really high, and the most he could afford um, was uh, basically a room in a basement. And he, you know, said at least once that that room kind of reminded reminded him of prison. All it had was a tiny window, uh, with not, not a whole lot of light coming into it, um, and that was the best that his circumstances could allow. So, Frederick, um, this is such an insane story because even though we're in our eighth season of wrongful conviction, um, we've told over 70 stories already. Uh, and just and I've been working for 25 years in this struggle. I'm the founding board member of the Innocence Project. I thought I had heard everything until I heard your story. And, you know, seeing the pictures of you as a 16-year-old a child really just scared out of your mind um faced with this nightmare situation it almost it almost reminded me of Emmett Till or something I mean, it was just so it, it just hurts my heart um but let's go back to that time you were living in a foster home at that time right yes i was living in a foster home i, I was placed in there by DYS 
I I had some juvenile cases and I got convicted or to I got sentenced to like to DYS and they sent me to a uh, boys detention center and I stayed there for a little while. Then I went from there to a program, stayed there for about six months, I believe, and then they decided that I need to be in a foster home. So I was in a foster home at that time. And you were not a, a, a big guy either. You were like, I mean, I remember reading that when this happened, you were like five four, about 100 pounds. Um, you were obviously ill-prepared for any type of scenario like this. No one's prepared for it, but... Let's go back to it, and and Chris, jump in any time. I mean, how did this happen? Why was why was Fred targeted for this? Was the murder of a taxi driver in Massachusetts, right? And can you give us a little background on that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the way I understand it is, Fred was arrested just a few weeks after turning sixteen and charged with the murder of a cab driver. the The really crazy part of the story was that uh, one of the uh, another cab driver who saw three. Um, Young uh, uh, African American men get into a cab. Um, was a- said he was able to ID one of them. Uh, another, per- the second person he couldn't ID, and the police used a practice they used back then of hyp- hypnotizing a witness in a case, believing that the brain functioned a lot like a videotape, and that you could put a witness under hypnosis and ask them to rewind to a certain date and time, and suddenly your brain would see things it hadn't recalled before. And that was one of the pieces um, that that led police to arrest and charge Fred and, and ultimately for prosecutors to convict him. But this, Fred, this witness, how did he come to identify you? Were you anywhere near the scene at the time? Did you know these people? I, I was not in the scene. I was in the foster home and sleeping in the bed. I really don't know how he became to identify me. I really can't answer that question. He he claims he saw uh, the picture of the cab driver of, of the cab in the front page of the Boston Globe, and he he recognized the cab number. I guess one of his friends used to break that cab, and he thought he saw the perpetrators get into the cab the previous night, and I guess he just went to the police station and tried to cooperate with the police. There was hypnosis involved. Um, I think he was showing my picture a few times, like four, five, six times. And when they hypnotized him, instead of him actually placing, you know, actually viewing the people, the perpetrator at the scene of the crime, he sort of like mugshot, sort of my my face from the mugshot was in his mind. Right. So, yeah, I mean, what we know that hypnosis, going back to what Chris was saying, hypnosis will make you see things you haven't seen before, but they will may not have any yeah, collection but, to reality, right? That's the problem. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think the hypnosis had anything to do with it. When someone shows you a photograph five or six times, their face is somewhat imprinted in your mind. Of course. I mean, that's one thing we do know about the mind is if you get, keep getting repeated uh, image, the same image repeated over and over again, it's going to play tricks on your mind and your mind will start to go yeah. to that place. And was and this? That's, that's what I think what happened. He just thought uh, your mind played, his mind played tricks on him. I mean, I really can't, I really can't answer that question how he picked me out, but he did. Was there, was this robbery at night? Yes, it's 4 o'clock in the morning. 4 o'clock in the morning, so it's pitch dark outside, right? And this guy supposedly yes. saw the robbery, right? But we know how, I mean, and we also know that the brain, when you witness a violent crime, eyewitness identification is notoriously unreliable in the first place. 
Um, if somebody busts into the studio now and attacks one of us and then they put us in a lineup, there's almost just as much chance that someone who wasn't here will identify the correct perpetrator or not get the wrong perpetrator the same way that we will, which is a crazy thing. And people are listening going, that's not true, but it has been proven over and over again. But it's the brain goes crazy, to, so to speak, because of adrenaline and other factors when you're in the presence, when you're actually in danger, right? So when you're the either the victim or when you're witness to a violent crime as this one was, we know that your 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 senses are um, you know altered because of the fact that you're just scared out of your brain, uh, literally. So, um, and this was one of those cases, right? This was a shooting. Yeah, there's two. I'll, I'll jump in here to help clarify this. So the the witness we're talking about, who was hypnotized by police, had claimed that he'd seen these um, these young African American uh, males get into this cab. Then the cab goes to, um, or, or allegedly goes to, um, a housing project um, a little bit south of the city um, in Roslindale. And then there was another witness that also had pretty serious question marks around um, how the police interacted with this witness. And this other witness claimed that he did actually see the shooting out of a, of a window of, of an apartment in the housing project. Um, what Fred's attorneys later uh, found out and, and really stressed in trying to re-engage with this case and, and, and prove that Fred didn't do it was... Um, see that this witness was, I think, a teenager. He had pretty severe developmental, um, you know, cognitive issues, um, and that police furthermore told him and his family um, that if they testified against Fred, um, that they would be moved out of this project, housing project, which was mostly African-American, into a housing project, which was mostly white. And again, this witness was was white. Wow. So talk about coercion or you know and isn't that a crazy thing too chris and fred is that everyone even the most casual tv watcher right who watches crime shows knows that you cannot bribe a witness you go to prison for bribing a witness in america right but the government is able to offer the best bribe that there is i mean in this case it was a new home right it's almost like a game show here's a new home just testify the way we want you to um, or they can yeah. threaten you, uh, or they, they, they can threaten yeah. you, and they do that very often. We'll take your kids away, uh, we'll lock you up for some prior thing, whatever, or they can also agree to vacate charges or reduce charges that they have against you. So it's it's amazing that the weapons that they have in there are, so it's really not a fair fight whatsoever. But what were you going to say, Fred? Um, also, the witness that uh, Chris was talking about, it happened in Rosendale Projects. This witness, I sort of I didn't know him personally, but we've seen each other from time to time in the projects. So he was familiar with my face. That's another thing that was really, that was really not really mentioned, mentioned a little bit, but it wasn't really focused on. So when someone recognized your face and they see your, your picture in the, in the photo array, then they're not really picking out the perpetrator. They're picking out a familiar face. So just because he was familiar with my face, he sort of just placed me at the scene of crime based on the fact that he was familiar with my face, not because he saw me at the scene of the crime. So we have a couple of factors here that are very common in wrongful convictions. We have police misconduct. We have wrongful eyewitness identification, uh, two of those, in fact. And and then it gets worse. Um, so you were, were you at home when you were arrested? How did this all go down, and, and how long did you have to wait for trial? Who, who was your, I assume you had a public defender. Can you fill in some of those blanks for us, Fred? 
yes, I was at the foster home when I got him. I was actually, when I went, uh, I was on probation because I had some juvenile cases. So I I had some issues with the foster parent. I really didn't, that she claims that I, fr- I ran away, but I, I never really ran away. I just, you know, vanished from time to time and came back. But anyway, uh, I showed up on November 15th to her house. And, and I didn't know that, but she had previously reported me for running. So when I showed up on November 15th, she informed me that she, I can stay that night. But at the same time, um, she she didn't want me to there the next morning. I had to leave the next morning. So the next morning came and she told me I had to leave because she reported me running. And she didn't want the police at her house. So I left and I was on probation. So I, I went to probation officer and sort of told her what was going on. And based on that, they sent me back to another facility that I was previously held at before, a juvenile facility. And I was there for a few, for about a little over a couple of weeks, I believe. And two plain cold detectives came in one evening and they went up to the main desk to talk to the, the counselor who worked there. And maybe about two minutes after that, they called my name. And I went up to the desk, and they asked me my name. I told my name is Frederick Clay. They told me they needed to speak with me. So they took me to, like, a little room to the, off to the side. And in that room, they informed me that they was arresting me for murder. So uh, I really didn't know anything about the murder until it actually they came there and arrested me for it. And, and my attorney at the time, when I went to trial, was Thomas Shapiro. So uh, it's... it's it's kind of crazy how I was somewhat informed about the murder. How long were you in jail awaiting trial? Because I'm assuming that there was either two no years. Bail. Two years oh, awaiting two years. trial. Wow. So that whole thing about I got it, in, the, in the Constitution. I got arrested in November 79, and I didn't go to trial until 1981. Right. That whole thing in the Constitution about your right to a speedy trial, um, we really don't see that very often in this country. It's kind of weird. I, I don't know what how that can be so routinely ignored or violated, but it is, and your case is uh, sadly not atypical in that sense. So you're in jail for two two years awaiting trial, and let's go to the trial, because um, it's always, I think, for our listeners, and even for me, an eye-opener to hear how these things go, especially in a case as serious as this one, where you were facing life in prison. Tell us what you can remember about the trial. For instance, did you think, um, if you can remember, and again, you were in prison for so long. I mean, it's it's actually crazy. You went to prison at 16 and you were in for 38 years, which means you were in prison for almost two and a half times as long as you had been alive, right? And your life experience yeah. as a 16-year-old, let's face it, the first three or four years, we're not even really sentient beings. We're kind of just stumbling around eating animal crackers or doing whatever we're doing, right? And playing with toys and having someone read us a book and hug us or if we're lucky. So, you know, for you, your life experience was so brief before you entered the system and you had already been in and out of the system. So um, here you are at trial um, and did you, if you can recall... Did you feel like when the jury went out that you were going to be convicted, or did you still have hope that you that justice would be done? Well, I wasn't really sure. There was a 50-50 chance that I was going to get convicted. I thought once I get on the stand and tell the truth and sort of present my case and and present the evidence to actually prove that I was innocent and, and have an alibi, present my alibi, I thought I was 
I might have a chance of being found not guilty. So I was, I was hoping that I was going to be found not guilty, but at the back of my mind, according to my attorneys, you know, there was a possible chance that I could get convicted. So uh, I was positive, hopefully, that I was going to get found not guilty, but at the same time, I was concerned that I will be found guilty. So I had a 50-50 chance. And, and just backtracking for a second, the witnesses against you, were they white or black? Well, a couple of them was black, I mean white, and one of them was black, but the one was black really didn't really, really didn't really hurt me that much. But the, the two main ones did, yes, they were white. And um, the reason I raise that question is because we know from decades of experience, research, studies, et cetera, that cross-racial identifications are just notoriously unreliable, um, much more so than uh, when people are you know, trying to identify someone of their own race. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. We don't have to get into all of them, but it's worth knowing because everyone that's listening right now, as I always say on this show, is a potential juror, and someday they may be faced with a situation like yours where there will be uh, I mean, there was no evidence against you, so it was only the, the witness's word. And if it is a cross-racial identification, and it doesn't matter whether that's why a white person testifying against a black person, uh, a, a Hispanic person testifying against a white person, whatever it might be, it's just not reliable. I, and, and, and so your case is an important one to highlight that particular factor. Because, again, the reason why I do this show, Fred, is because I want to help to prevent these things from happening to other people in the future, as I'm sure you do. I'm not sure if, if that was a well-known fact back in 1981, the cross-racial identification issue, but it's a well-known fact now. Right, and I'm glad you brought that up. So so the jury comes back, and it had to be the worst, uh, the worst feeling in the world. Um, and you were sentenced to life in prison, which is, again, a bizarre... Yeah, uh, a natural life, not just a life, a natural life. Life sort of means like a second-degree life, but natural means a first-degree life sentence with with a chance of no, of no parole, which means like a you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison, you're going to die in prison. And, and Chris, let's talk about that. I mean, how, I mean, what kind of a system do we have where we can sentence someone who was really a child, an adolescent, when this happened, a young teenager, to life in prison? Yeah, I mean, it's it is it's just shocking, and um, you know, thankfully there were later, much later, Supreme Court decisions that that tried to undo some of that. So it did, at a very much later stage, uh, did make Fred eligible for parole. But we're talking again decades later um, that there was some understanding of just how wrong that is. That that obviously to to charge someone uh, at sixteen and put and put them to adult trial raises a lot of really serious questions, but then to um, to make that same person um, prone to being convicted and sentenced to life without any chance of parole is all the more um, uh, shocking. Yeah, so... You know what? Just think about it. A judge telling you, a 16-year-old kid, that you are incapable of changing. So therefore, you need to spend the rest of your life in, in, in adult prison. You know, and often think about that. And they took me out of a bad situation and they put me in even a worse situation. Because a lot of people don't survive prison. And I was thinking about a lot of that stuff and how I was going to survive that, what I was going to end up. 
being murdered, raped, killed, whatever. So just to have someone tell you at the age of 16 that we think that you are incapable of changing. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from The Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. 
My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And when you went to prison, um, this was, you know, this was the reality, right? I mean, this was a very violent place, and you were in amongst people who were much older than you, stronger, um, you know, and here you are, uh, like, thrust into this unimaginable nightmare. How did you manage to survive as a young, not a particularly big, tough guy, but, you know, uh, a, a young, skinny guy in that situation? How did you manage to survive? Well, personally, I just paid attention to my surroundings. A lot of older gentlemen that was doing natural life sentence sort of took a liking to me and they just sort of just gave me, just told me uh, the way of prison life. Mind your business. If you see something, keep it to yourself. Don't talk to corrections officers. Try to stay out of trouble. Uh, Get into programs. Try to use that time to benefit me as a person, to change things about myself that I did not like. To uh, sort of use that time to work on me as a human being. And they also let me, they also told me I had to figure out how to do the time and not let the time do me. And it took me quite a while to understand that. When, so like, what you mean do the time and not let the time do me? So basically what they was telling me, just what I was telling you is just try to use this bad experience and focus on the things that I don't do not like about myself and the things that I can change to make, me feel good about myself and to make other people see me in a way that I want them to see me. So I, it was some, it was a little bit of that. And it was just a little bit of me just figuring out who I can trust and who I can't trust. And also not to put myself in a certain position to have some of these bad things happen to me. Just, you know, make sure that whoever I'm dealing with, be upfront with them about my situation and just uh, be aware of their motives, you know? And then there was a sort of a hero emerged, if you could call it that, from this situation. A guy named Roosevelt Pickett really helped to pull you out of this, right? And, And introduced you to a very unlikely character who became almost like, I don't want to use too strong of a word, but almost like your savior, right? Um, and can you talk about uh, that whole much, yeah, yeah, that whole situation is so interesting to me. So can you talk about that a little bit? Well, Roosevelt Pickett was he was an old gentleman. I think he was like in the sixties and I knew him at that time I knew him for about twelve years, thirteen years, and he was also doing a life bit. And he had he, he was he was walking the king, so he had an accident. He used to do cadre works and stuff like that. So he fell off the roof and he used to walk around with a game. So uh, anyway, uh, I used to work in, the, I was in Bay State Prison at this time. And I was working downstairs on the first floor in the day room. And he lived on the first floor. And he was down there cooking in the, in the day room one afternoon. And I was, I was down there doing my job and everything. And he was, and so we, we started talking about visits and stuff like that. And he asked me, did, did I have anybody that, you know, family members and friends that visit me? And I told him, 
Uh, not really. I had a, my great aunt. She visited me like every two years, three years, a year, whenever she can find time to do it. So then he asked me if I was, if if I wanted somebody to visit me, like from a church and stuff like that. And I said, sure, why not? I, I've welcomed the opportunity to meet somebody from church and just have a friend to come visit me. So he he put me uh, in touch with um, prison ministry. I think it was called Candlelight Ministries. And I had to fill out some forms and stuff like that. And I filled out the forms and he sent it in. And I'm not quite sure how long after that, uh, then I, I met Reverend Fred Small. He came to visit me. And that was back in, I think that was like in 97, 1997, 98. And uh, once he came to Bay State to visit me, uh, we, we saw our friendship develop and got stronger and stronger. And the more he visited me, the more I started talking about my case and and me as a person and things I like and dislike and and I just take this interest and so he helped me somewhat get out of prison and then he spoke to his parishioners and asked if anybody would like to get involved in this um you know helping out i guess and and you know, volunteering to make friends with someone on the inside. And it's interesting because yeah. pe- people ask me that question a lot. And I'm always trying to connect people as best I can. Um, and in fact, uh, a software engineer named Doran Dibble, which is sort of an unusual name, right? It's sort of an interesting, like if I was writing a movie about your story, I would name the guy Doran Dibble. Um, so Doran Dibble shows up, some, a sort, of a, a sort of a very square looking white guy. Right, so it comes in out of nowhere. What, you, what was your reaction when you met this guy? Well, he, he was funny. He was very smart. He was kind. Of, he was very kind. He was generous. He was uh, sincere. He was uh, empathetic. Um, he told a lot, he told some jokes. I thought he was a very nice guy, and I thought this is the kind of person that I need in my life to sort of help me take me out of my comfort zone, so to speak, because I wasn't really that social with in prison. So he sort of sort of brought me out of my shell a little bit. So I thought he was a very nice person, something that I someone that I, I needed to have in my life to help me grow, uh, socially anyway, you know? In in many other ways after the after that, to be exact. And how how important was that relationship to you? It was very important. Uh, I mean how many people do you, you know will bring their their young, small children in to see a, a person in prison that's non-family. So he became, uh, I know I, I used this phrase before, um, he was a stranger in the beginning, but he became family to me in the end, and he's still family right now. So his friendship and him being part of my life was very, very important then, and it's very important now. He's still in my life right now. And Chris, in the article that you wrote about the case, I was really moved by this quote from Mr. Dibble, where he said, and I'm quoting, one of the amazing things for me is, given his circumstances, we're talking life without parole, his resilience, determination, and his decency through all that, it's a model to me. He didn't hate the establishment. We're white. He didn't care. I'm getting the chills uh, just reading that, and you actually did the interview with him. I mean, can you share some insight into this guy? Because he really does emerge as a hero in this story. Yeah, no, it, it was it. 
is and was an incredible part of the of the whole story. And just sitting here, honestly, listening to Fred again, I, I really enjoyed every minute hanging out with Fred over the over the course of the last year. And um, I'm guessing that listeners can kind of get a feel as to how Fred talks, and that people are kind of drawn to that that the way he talks and understands things about this really awful experience he had he had to go through and um so Doran Dibble and his wife Jackie and and his two kids I met one of his kids who's now you know in his 20s and and I hung out with them over dinner uh that they invited Fred over and I asked to come along back in July and um yeah Doran and and his wife Jackie just um are really big-hearted people and um, just showed up there in prison, you know, frequently during the year. Like every few months, they would drive down and and go through. It's not easy to get into a prison. You got to sit there and wait and get frisked down and go through metal detectors and wear exactly the right clothing or they turn you away. And, um, you know, they again, they brought their little kids in to kind of hang out with Fred and sit there and play cards. And just the whole dynamic and relationship that that was related to me really kind of blew me away. It's almost like the family that Fred couldn't have. And now all of a sudden he has sort of a adoptive family inside. And, and you know, it was a long drive um, and they would come every couple of months. And there's one more quote, and I'm going to get back to the story, because, again, this really touched me, and I got the chills reading the last one. I'm going to get him again, um, because uh, Mr. Dibble said, uh, quote, we'd all pile back in the car when our visit was over, and it was just dead silence in the car, because that's where it really hit everybody. Oh, this is from Jackie Dibble. Let me say Let me start again. And, and Mrs. Dibble, Jackie Dibble, said, Quote, we'd all pile back in the car when our visit was over, and it was just dead silence in the car because that's where it really hit everybody. We'd walk out of there under the barbed wire. We get to go home, and he doesn't. And it was just nobody would say anything on the way home. And, end quote. And I've had that feeling so many times now, visiting people in prison who I know are innocent. And then when I leave... Um, and that door slams behind, and you can't take them with you. It's a horrible feeling. It's uh, it's a sick feeling, actually. And um, Chris is nodding his head because he knows. And you know, it does drive me, uh, and I think all of us every day to try to do more to help people like yourself, Fred. Um, because it's if you've it, once you've experienced that, and I brought four people with me up to Sing Sing this weekend. Uh, where we met many of the um, men who are stuck there, some of whom are innocent, some are not. Um, but, you know, I would say that 90% of the people that we met there don't belong there. You know, they've served their time. They may have made a mistake. Um, I'm I'm of the Brian Stevenson school. He's one of my heroes. And, you know, he said, I believe everyone is better than the worst thing they've ever done. Um you know, I think in our system, we over-incarcerate to such an extreme degree. We over-punish. Um, the institutions that we have that are called correctional institutions are, are not, by and large. And all of it needs to change. And that's why it's so important that you're here, Fred, to tell your story. So I really appreciate that. Um, and you too, Chris. So, Fred, tell us how this situation changed. Because you were sentenced to life in prison. You had no hope to get out. You found this inner strength, this grace, this courage that always 
mystifies me and amazes me and makes me, you know, draws me to people like yourself because I get so much um, out of just talking to you and and, uh, spending time. And so how did you ultimately, I mean, we know how you survived because you explained that, but how did you get out? Because you're here now and that's a fantastic thing. And I know, and I want to talk about the struggle of being out as well because it's what I call the second punishment. But how did the, let's get to the happy stuff. How'd you get out? I got out on a new trial motion. Um, Lisa Kavanaugh from the CPCS Innocent Program. She's my attorney. She was my uh, attorney on my appeal. We drafted and critiqued and finally finalized a new trial motion. And we filed that, I think, when I was in Concord Farm, um, probably late. 2016, I believe. Um, it, it took a while, but between eyewitness uh, uh, identification, the hypnosis, cross-racial identification, um, somewhat mugshot exposure, some police reports that the detectives somewhat, I mean, obviously overlooked. It, it was a combination of all that stuff together that helped me get out of prison. Um, also in, in 2013, I would say late December, 2013, the juvenile life of law changed, which gave juveniles and opportunities, juveniles under the age of 18, an opportunity to see the parole board. So once that law changed, that law allowed me to see the parole board. So at that particular time, I was not, I was still thinking about and preparing for my Rule 30 motion, but I was also preparing for my parole hearing. So I ended up uh, going to parole on May 21st, 19, uh, 2015, I should say. And the results of that, I ended up getting, I presented my case at the parole board stating that I was innocent, but at the same time, taking responsibility for the crimes that I did do for the juvenile issue, the cases that I had previous of me getting arrested for this murder case. I took responsibility for all that stuff, but I did not take responsibility for the current case that I was doing time for, which was the murder. And I let them know that if I did do it, I would have no problem taking responsibility and admitting guilt, but that's not the case. So I didn't, I did not admit to something I did not do, but at the same time, I was letting them know that prison. So, you know I mean, by me being in prison, I was not the same person I was when I first went to prison. I was a different person sitting in front of them. So I just explained to them how different I was through programs and education and stuff like that. So basically I got out, I was going, I was set to get out on parole anyway. I was scheduled to get out on parole August 12th, but August 12th was on a Saturday. So they pushed it to, to August 14th was on Monday. And tell you the truth, I'm not quite sure how this happened, but I ended up getting exonerated a week before I was scheduled to get released on parole. That is very unusual, and there's so many unusual things about your case. I mean, let's go back to the hypnosis thing, because even even though back then 
we you know we didn't we didn't know a lot of the things that we know now but but even back then Walter Cronkite was on TV talking about how this hypnosis thing was a disaster and it didn't make any sense Walter Cronkite one of the most yeah. respected people in America at that time one of the most respected yeah. journalists of all time um, yeah. so what was it like Fred walking out into the fresh air after spending uh, a longer time than than most of the people that are listening to the show have even been alive, right? I mean, we have two people in the studio here who haven't been alive that long, 38 years. Well, the first thing I did was um, hug my attorneys, thank them very much, um, hugged Jackie and Doran Dibbles and their family, and Victor Rosario, he was there. I hugged him. And once I did that, I started talking to the media. So that was the first thing I did, start talking to the media after I hugged my friends and stuff. But uh, to answer your question, what it was like, it was felt very strange to be walking without outside of prison, without no shackles on my feet. That felt very strange. Um, every time I left prison, no matter to go to hospital or whatever, to, to court, whatever, they always had shackles on your feet. And once they actually said that you're free to go and they put me in the, in the, in the, like the holding cell for a little while, for like an hour to finalize everything. So once everything was finalized and they opened the, the, uh, the cell door and I walked downstairs and I actually walked downstairs to, to be outside, it felt very strange. To be, like I said, to be walking without no shackles on my feet. I thought it was a dream, but then again, it wasn't a dream. But it was kind of overwhelming. It was. I was happy. I was somewhat cautious, um, and I was like in shock to some degree. So it was. It was a combination of all those things. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's a a joyous, uh, you know, just thinking about it and envisioning it is such a joyous thing. But I think that um, people get the idea that you know, everyone sees on the on the news uh, the photographs or the video of someone like yourself coming out, and there's all this joy. And you have, if you're if you're fortunate enough, like you were, to have some friends and family around. And there's news media, and there's cameras, and maybe the sun is shining. But there's another side to that too, right? I mean, you come out and you get nothing. Like most of the people, and this is crazy because for 25 years I've been doing this work and anyone I talk to that's not aware, you know, when I meet somebody new and I'm talking about this issue because I talk about it everywhere, the first thing they want to know is, does the exoneree get paid? Like, just tell me they get money. And I have to tell them that in most cases, no. And even in the cases when they do, it takes an unconscionably long time, years and years. Um, This is something the Innocence Project has been deeply involved with recently we just passed the compensation statute in kansas so it's the 31st state to actually have compensation statutes there's still 19 states that have none no compensation statutes um and for you fred coming out of prison after 38 years having gone in as a 16 year old kid um you know 
trying to rebuild your life, I want to focus for a minute on those challenges, which I don't think get the type of attention that they deserve. And I think we as a society owe you and every man and woman that has been through this type of ordeal, we owe you more than a fresh start. I mean, we owe you a debt. And I think that as soon as you get out, that should start to be getting repaid. But that's not the way it works. And your case is a a, a very strong example of that. So can you talk about the the challenges? I mean, you haven't gotten any money yet, right? Well, um, my attorney is working on that right now. So uh, it's it's still to be, remain to be, it's it's still being worked on. And how how long have you been out? A little over a year now. So it's been... August 8th, so it's been a little over a year. About 15, 15 to 16 months. 15 months, much like that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can jump in here a little bit. I mean, this was this was this was the focus of my reporting for the last year was to to kind of answer that question: What's life like when you get out um, of prison? His 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 uh, Fred's uh, murder conviction was vacated, and um, you know, my my editor suggested, why don't we see what life's like in the first thirty days? And that turned into why don't we uh, why don't I check in with Fred from time to time over the course of a year and. Um, and Fred can kind of fill in a lot of this stuff, but but a lot of it was, you know, what what do you do to survive? You need you need housing, you need shelter, and you need some income to provide that shelter and food, just the base bare basics of survival. And um, that was what, you know, Fred and I would kind of meet up, and he would very graciously let me tag along with him as um, he talked to people about filling out job applications and. Uh, trying to work on a resume and and watched him move from one apartment to another apartment, um, and I think you know maybe Fred, you could talk a little bit about what those experiences well, were like. Not really an apartment; it's a room. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, it's it's been kind of challenging um, when you've been in prison for that long. Obviously, technology has changed, and technology definitely has changed to the point where. It's all new to me. Um, I often make this phrase, it's like I've been reborn again. And I have to learn everything all over again, including technology. So, and even how you fill out job applications now is different compared to when I was back in the 70s and stuff. There's a lot of stuff you got to fill out online now. It's pretty much everything, housing application, job applications, everything. So the challenge of learning the technology is still the challenge. Um, I, I'm still, I know a little bit, but there's a whole lot more that I need to learn. And that's been kind of, um, frustrating and exciting at the same time and aggravating. But at the same time, I've been reminding myself that hopefully eventually I get there. I just need to be patient with myself, but, uh, trying to survive out here when you've been in prison that long, is kind of difficult. Um, even, maintaining a job um it's it's been kind of challenging i'm still dealing with that oh uh, what what um what part of massachusetts are you living in now fred i'm living in lowell massachusetts so that's right by boston right um it's not it's 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 by boston but i wouldn't call it right by It's, it's, it's some distance yes but it is by boston it's about an hour north of boston okay well yes well, uh, and uh, when you don't drive, that's another thing. I, I really, I haven't really started driving yet. And when you, when you, 
don't know how to drive, you're very limited. So I'm sort of restricted to a certain area and low, and that's been kind of challenging. The public transportation here is not that great. It shuts down at 7 o'clock in the evening, and that's been an issue that I still struggle with today. So I need to learn how to drive in order to get more access to resources, jobs, housing, just to get around. I need to learn how to drive, and people have been um, offering their help, and I've even been thinking about going to driving school, but it's just the thought of it is fine. It's just putting it in action, it's, you know, trying to figure out when the right time is. Maybe there is no right time. Maybe I just need to just jump into it and do it. But all that's been kind of challenging to me, to figure out what's important, what's not important, trying to prioritize things. That's been a, a, a big issue. And I can tell just from the way, you know, you are and the way that you've dealt with this situation that I think anybody I know, uh, except exonerees that I know, actually would have crumbled under the weight of this um, a, a, a unreal ordeal. Um, so I know you're going to be successful, but I think all of us just need a little boost every once in a while. So I'm happy to say that, um, th- that's something I would be able to, 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 to provide. So, um, I do want to, um, I want to ask you also what, um, if you can think of it, what's been your happiest moment, uh, since you got out? It's interesting. I'm seeing, I'm looking at a picture right now of you with the, uh, with the dibbles, um, with Doran and Jackie, it's really sort of a funny picture. I mean, you have this giant smile on your face, and uh, the glasses on, and and they, you know, they're obviously smiling too. But I mean, they are really white. <laughs> These people are, you know, it's really just an interesting, you know, uh, photograph because the it's just such an un, unusual, uh, you know, combination. Of different backgrounds, but it, but it's there's a lot of humanity in that, right? And there's a lot of beauty yes, in it. it. There's a lot of beauty in it. So, um, yes. I mean, aside from the moment when you first stepped out, which must have been as much of a shock as anything else, uh, what's been your happiest uh, memory since in the 15, 16 months since you got out? Well, there's, there's been a few. There's my mother's grave that was very uh, happy, uh, but. I would say right now, the uh, skydiving. <laughs> you went skydiving? I went skydiving twice. Wow. And I would say that, I said that because some guys that I was in prison with that ended up passing away in prison, often, you know, we often talked about skydiving and, and we, we watched some programs on, on WGBH about skydiving and stuff like that. And we, said to ourselves that they look a lot of fun, you know, look like fun and like, look like the people was enjoying themselves. So when I went skydiving, I was sort of like dedicating that moment to them because they sort of helped me change who I was as a person. They sort of helped me get back into my case and make me stay focused on that. So um, when I skydived the first time, it was just to honor them and for me to thank them and to show respect for them, for what they did for me. Because I, at that time, and I still do now, I consider myself very lucky. So that was a very special moment, the first time and the second time too. Because the second time, 
when I went skydiving, I went with a lot of exonerated people, people that was in my, somewhat in my situation. We all had our individual cases that end up, that we end up in prison for, but we all was innocent. And um, so it was kind of special to be with them. That way I felt, you know, that I was surrounded by people who actually knew what I was going through. And they didn't have no problem sharing what they was going through, what they went through in prison and what they're dealing with now out here. That you know, we sort of just share our experience and share the knowledge and help each other. So that was kind of special. And also, um, when I jumped out the plane a second time, it sort of reminded me of life. Like when you jump out the plane, there is no turning back. You came to say, well, I changed my mind. I want to go back. And once you jump out the plane, you, you're in the elements. And so you got to face whatever there, whatever fear you have, whatever it is, you got to face that. And it sort of reminds me about my life right now. Whatever it is in life that I'm uncomfortable with, I have fear about, I have to try to face it and try to do the best I can. So to answer your question, the skydiving was the most important thing to me. Well, that's an incredible uh, story and very moving and very uh, just amazing to think about. But I will say this, if you can jump out of a plane, you can definitely drive a car. And I'm going to make you a deal right here in front of however many 100,000 people listening to this show. If you'll take your driver's course... Wrongful conviction will get you a car. So that'll be our deal. Um, you got to go make sure you can drive it. But if you can do it, we'll get you a car. All right? And then, then, then me and Chris are coming, and we're going to take a ride with you. So Because we're <laughs> you jump out of a plane, I'll get in the car with you behind a wheel, no problem. Okay? Okay. Okay. All right. We got a Sounds deal. Good. We got a deal. We have 100,000 witnesses. So there you go. Um, well, you know, it's, it's, wow. it's amazing, Fred, you know, that, um, um, and I am going to put hey, you, what's that? To, to, to say something, it only take one witnesses to get someone convicted. Never mind a hundred thousand. Right. Well, there we <laughs> go. go. So, um, we have a tradition here on wrongful conviction, which is my favorite part of the show. I think it's everybody's favorite part of the show, which is that at the end of the show, which is now, I always, of course, thank both of you, um, Chris and Fred, for being here and sharing your your story and, and your wisdom, Chris, and experience. Um, so I'm thanking you now. And then also at the end of the show, the featured part is where I get to stop talking and do all the listening. And what how this works is I just turn the microphone over to you for any closing thoughts that you have, if you have any, you know, no pressure, um, but the microphone is yours. So <clears throat> let's start with you, Chris. Um, anything, any last words? Well, as, as always, like it's really fascinating for me to, to listen to Fred and um, uh, was a real privilege as a reporter to get to, um, you know, spend time with him and have work in a place and have editors that, that saw how important that was to do it. And, um, um, it's again, I think Fred, um, 
just went through something really awful and has these amazing insights about what his experience was. And it's not surprising that he drew um, the kind of support to him that he did because, um, again, he's able to kind of reflect and share. He has a great sense of humor. And um, it's uh, it's kind of brings me back to what it was like talking with him over, over these last uh, many months. So happy to be here again. Chris Burrell, thank you again for being here on Wrongful Conviction. And now over to you, Fred, for your last words and thoughts. I want to thank you for the opportunity to uh, speak on, on the podcast. And, and I want to thank Chris Burrell for bugging me to do this. I'm just joking, but to <laughs> come to me in the beginning when I first got out and presented the opportunity for him to follow me and talk about the the person's life after the cameras go away. Um, I'm, I'm sort of glad that he did that because it, it made me stay true to who I was and it made me more focused about my situation. And at the same time, it brought me out of my shell, so to speak, too. And I want to say that uh, people sometimes ask me about why am I not bitter uh, about my situation. Um, don't get me wrong, I'm definitely upset about what happened to me. But at the same time, it sort of made me aware of who I was at that time as a person. And it made me change who I was to who I'm in right now today. And I must say, I like the person I become today. I didn't like myself back then. And it made me think about those things. So uh, in the process of sharing my, my story with Chris, it sort of made me realize that too. So I thank him for the opportunity to make me aware of that. And I want to thank my attorneys, Lisa Kavanaugh and Jeffrey Harris, and my attorney who passed away, Emmanuel Howard. I want to thank all three of them for helping me get to where I'm at today. And my supporters too, the Dibbles, Fresh Smalls, these are so many people, so many people helped me. I want to thank everybody for that. Wow. That's yeah, it just took me a minute to collect myself. But, um, well, once again, uh, you've been listening to Wrongful Conviction, uh, today's episode featuring investigative journalist Chris Burrell and Fred Clay, exonerated after 38 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. Gentlemen, thank you again for being on the show. Um, and uh, I look forward to... Um, to, to taking a ride uh, through Lowell <laughs> with the with the music blasting loud, I hope, with you two guys. Heck yeah, and maybe good. we'll go and pick up the dibbles along the way. <laughs> so um, and that's a and that's a that's a bet. So um, thanks again and uh, we'll we'll keep the conversation moving. Thank you. Okay, I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Fred. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. 
The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.